0: Judges chapter four, <coughs> starting at verse one. And the children of Israel did again, did again, did evil in the sight of the Lord, which Ehud, when Ehud was dead, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, who which dwelt in Seth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for He had 900 chariots of iron in 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So we're going to stop there because there's a few things we want to point out. We've had three judges already if you remember we've covered three judges already and all of a sudden they've gone into captivity again and remember last week I said each time that they go into captivity it is a longer period of captivity before it was nine years then it was twelve this time it's twenty years that they're under oppression, and we see this happening. They keep going in for long periods of time, and that's what God does often in our lives when we don't, when we're disobedient to Him and keep being disobedient. The first time is He just lets us give repentant and and turns us around, and usually He'll let us go longer and longer, and say, "Well, you, you're not learning your lesson. Let me put you under trials for a longer period of time. Usually not 20 years, but." This is a nation we're talking about, not an individual. But God will do this to us quite often. If you want to keep committing the same sin over and over again, he eventually just says, okay, you wallowed around in it just days or weeks. Now we're going to let you wallow around in it for for months. Then we're going to let you wallow around in it for years, maybe even decades if you're really, really stubborn. The good news is when you repent and turn to him, he comes. Yeah, I love the fact that God loves sinners. I'm really glad he is because I'm a, I'm a sinner myself, and he loves me, and he, I think he loves each one of you in this room. You all are sinners, I believe, so God God loves you as well. And the movie I was watching the other day, goes, the guy goes, and they go, what do you know? How do you know Jesus loves you? And He goes, well, because he's God, and because he has a soft spot for sinners. <laughs> I kind of I kind of liked that statement. Yeah, yeah, I liked that statement in the movie. He has a soft spot for sinners. You know, he loves sinners. How many times do we as Christians communicate to the lost world that God somehow doesn't love them because they're a sinner? We get so judgmental of them sometimes that we harass them instead of showing God's love to them and lifting him up because we don't want to see people become good sinners before they get saved. We want them to be saved so that God can then take their sin out of their life and make them good. And we'll never be good as far as that goes, but he'll take the sin out of our life. So many Christians when they talk to somebody want to say, well you know when you get your life all put together then you can come to Jesus. And we may not say it out directly but don't we sometimes, well that person is just too much of a sinner for me to go talk to. And we back off from them. We need to be very careful. God loves sinners and he wants them in their sin. Who did Jesus have the most problem with? The scribes and Pharisees who needed him just as much or more than the lost world but didn't recognize that they needed him because they were good. They were following the rules, at least in their mind, and they gave Jesus a hard time. And so we see here the people now are in this captivity for 20 years. And then we look at this and he says that they had 900 chariots of iron. Now, for most of us, we don't really think of chariots as being that big a deal, but the chariots in their day were the equivalent of our tanks in this day. And tanks are hard to stop. You know, you can stop them. We have weapons that can stop them. You can even stop them by hand if you're brave enough to stand in the right places and and put a grenade at the right place, but most people are not. And usually they go too fast for you to be able to do it anyway. The chariot was this kind of vehicle. It would run through the lines and, and charge right through them and usually had blades on the, on the wheels and everything that would cut people up if they tried to. They were a formidable weapon in their day. And he had 900 of them, which is a pretty good number of chariots for a small country. So we see the power and the judgment. God's put them under somebody who's really powerful. When Jehud killed his, his person, all he had to do was get into the palace with the gift and he stuck that you know, 18-inch dagger into the guy's belly and, and killed him. This is not that kind of a king. This one has power and strength that's going to cause them discon- disconcerting uh, attitude. And, he, and it says he mightily oppressed them. That means he took heavy taxes. He put them into bondage. He did. He, he was not a nice ruler over them. All right? <laughs> Verse 4, And Deborah the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramoth and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. And she sent and called for Barak the son of Abinomah, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto you in the river of Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver them into your hand. All right, so here's the battle plan. Uh, He says, Deborah, first off, is the ruler, the judge of Israel. Now what this means, I don't know. She's the only female judge in the scriptures. She's really one of the only female leaders <laughs> in the scriptures. And I don't know if that's because no man would step up at the time or whatever it might be, but she is their judge. And she calls Barak and tells him, go get an army. <laughs> go get an army of 10,000 men. Now that's not a small army. And they're going to go up against 10, uh, 900 chariots and whatever army Sisera has beyond that. And, he, and she says, God will deliver him into your hand. Now, this is something that God promises us victory. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: there hath no temptation overtaken us, but such is common to man. But God will provide a way of escape. In our lives, God has promised us victory if we will obey and turn to him. He promises us peace through the trials as well. And you know it's hard for the world to understand how Christians can have peace in the middle of a trial. And this is something that I talk about often. When we focus on God and know that he's got nothing but good for us in the long run and that he's in control, I don't know about you, but that gives me peace no matter what comes my way. Because all I've got to do is say, God, don't understand it. Don't need to understand it. You've got a plan, and you've you've promised good. Now, that just gives us peace. It doesn't mean you're going to be jumping up and down when you're going through the trial. Okay? There's no promise that you're going to be happy about the trial. Matter of fact, if you're happy about pain, there's something else wrong with you. (laughs) Okay? Uh, There's some psychological issues with you if you're happy when you're going through trials. But we should be at peace. And there should be some internal joy. God, you're teaching something out of all of this. You're trying to accomplish something out of this. Help me to see that. Help me to live in the comfort of what you've got. We can live in comfort during the trials. We can live in peace during the trials. And We might even have a portion of joy because it's God's joy that he's doing something in our life. But I'm never going to tell you be happy when everything's going wrong. Because I'm not happy when things go wrong. I will go to God and go, God, I don't understand this. Help me understand it. But I do have peace most of the time. <laughs> and that's what he's looking for. Do we have peace? Do we have comfort? Not are we happy. That God, I used to turn to God and say, God, you've got a plan. I just help me to see it. Help me be patient. Sometimes it takes patience to see what he's doing. You may not see it for decades. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, This is why I went through that thing 20 years ago, 30 years ago, so that I would be ready for this. Now, Barak is told that he's going to be conquering, uh, he's going to meet him at the river, and Jabin's army is going to be there, in the multitude. And God says, through Deborah, he will deliver them into your hand. How many times does God tell us he's going to deliver the enemy? Do we realize Satan is a defeated enemy? Jesus beat him at the cross. Now, he is still kicking around and growling and, and, and roaring around, but he is a defeated enemy. He can do nothing unless God allows him to. He's already had the keys to the kingdom and this world taken away from him by Jesus at the cross through the resurrection. He is a defeated enemy. The problem is we don't usually look at him as a defeated enemy. We're, we're totally in fear of him and thinking that he has more power than, than he has. Gary? Or not Gary, Billy? That's it. it's interesting that, they, that they, he's defeated, yet they still consider him an enemy. I, mean, I guess that's just to justify Well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, he is defeated. We really don't need to look at him as an enemy. Well, he so can't, is huh? Is that to say that before the cross, he wasn't defeated? He was the God of this world until Jesus took the sin upon himself. Now, in God's eyes, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So Satan technically, in God's eyes, was defeated even before he ever started anything. But in reality, he was defeated when Jesus took all the sin upon himself, and he took the keys of the kingdom. Because when Adam and Eve sinned as the federal head of the human race, They handed the rulership of this world, which belonged to man, to Satan because of their sin. Jesus took that away from him at the cross when he paid for this sin, finally paid for it. Now, in God's eyes, because Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Satan was already defeated. Before the cross. Before the cross, before before creation. (laughs) This is hard for us to understand. God created man knowing that we were going to sin knowing that he had already asked Jesus to go to the cross and die for our sin even before he created us so as far as God was concerned when man sinned, we were still forgiven they were still forgiven because he when Jesus said yes I will die the father knew that he was going to die plus the fact that he knows time from the beginning to the end so when Jesus said yes I will die man was forgiven we weren't even created yet, <laughs> and man was forgiven. See, that's what's amazing is that back then, that is for like eternity ahead, like before, like you said, before we were born. That well, before he even created. Yeah. Even before creation, he had already decided that we were forgiven because Jesus was going to die. And I've, always, I've said this many times. I don't understand why he created man knowing that we were going to sin so that he would have to redeem us. It doesn't make any sense to me, but yet he did. Now, Why? Maybe he'll tell us when we get to heaven. I don't know. We probably won't care when we get to heaven why he created us. We'll just be happy to be in his presence. It's almost like a puzzle. It's a puzzle that we may probably never understand. just to rebuild it, so why build it? <laughs> yeah. and that's why I'm saying from a human perspective none of this makes sense but God knows something that we don't and it makes perfect sense to him you know it's not and be careful of this it's not that he needed us to worship him because God is complete within himself and whole in himself he needed nothing alright so it wasn't creating us so that we would worship him because he did not need that now, he probably takes pleasure in it and probably will take pleasure in it, but there's no need, so it's hard for us to be able to begin to understand why were we created when he knew that it was, what was going to happen. And back to our story, Deborah tells Barak, this is a defeated enemy. God is going to deliver him into your hand. And let's look at Barak's answer, because he, he wasn't very godly. <laughs> Verse 8, and Barak said unto her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, then I will not go. Alright. Here, here is the great big brave <laughs> leader of the army. Uh, hey, I'm not going out to beat him, I'm not going out to meet him unless you go with me. Alright. Uh, which is kind of a bizarre thought, especially if you put yourself back in their day. Women did not go out to battle. Especially a woman yeah a woman did not go out to battle it was not their place to go out to to war and he's going probably, maybe he's thinking well she'll never go out to war so yeah. Yeah, I, I'm avoiding going out to war because I'm going to ask her to go and she's a woman so she'll say no okay maybe that's what he was thinking I don't know exactly what he was thinking maybe he was thinking you know uh, I need the I need her because I, you know she'll be the victor I don't know what he was thinking I kind of think he might have been you know, saying, "Well, if I ask her to go to war, she's going to say no." So I, I'll get out. I'll get out of this. <laughs> and. You know, so, uh, that, that was kind of From a positive look that may be, what are we saying? Yeah, you might yeah. know. I've always thought it the other way around, but that's a, that's a viable thought. Maybe he's thinking, I want God on my side, so she needs to be there. She's, she's a judge. She represents God. I'll guarantee that God's on our side. Her, her word, his word isn't enough. How many times, though, do we do that? The word is not enough. You know, the, the message we get from somebody on counseling that's based in the word of God is not enough for us to step out in well, trust of God. When he hears it from a lady now, now I can see if a guy said that maybe they would. She's the judge, so I mean, I don't. Yeah. She She's the ruler, so I mean, it <laughs> should make sense. A prophet. And a prophetess, she speaks for God. They've recognized her. I mean, everything about this, he should have jumped up and said, okay, you got it. Yes, ma'am. You know, okay, you speak for God, you're the leader, I'm going to go out and do this. And his answer was, unless you go, I'm not going. Now, now, possibly it was, like Paul said, you know, that he was saying, I want to make sure God's on my side. It might have been that he was being a coward and saying, you know, there's no way she's going, I'm not going, you know, because I don't think she's going to say yes. Uh, Who knows what, you know, it doesn't tell us what was in his mind, but her answer back to him and, in verse 9 says and she said I will surely go with you notwithstanding the journey that you take shall not be for your honor for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of the woman and Deborah arose and went with Bar- Barak to Gadesh alright Sisera was supposed to be delivered into Barak's hand and he was going to get the glory as the general of the army He was going to get the, you know, blessing, privilege, whatever you want to look at, of killing the general for the enemy, for God. And she said, well, you want me to go? Fine, I will go. But you no longer will have the glory. You are not going to be lifted up. You are not going to be exalted because of this battle. And you know what? After these couple chapters, we don't hear from... Barak after this. You know, he got his wish. He led an army that defeats him and Sisera runs and it says he's going to be killed by a woman. A woman's going to be the one that kills him. And we're going to get into, most of you know this story, but you know, uh, we're going to get there and see that a woman is going to be the one <laughs> that is going to get the glory of killing Sisera. Not Deborah. But not Deborah. Deborah's not the one that's going to do it. Verse 10, And Barak called Zebulun and Nephitali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Ken- Kenite, which was of the children of Hubab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent in the plain of Za'anaim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Balak, the son of Abinam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Horoshef of the Gentiles unto the river of Gishan, And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men after him and the Lord discomforted Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off the chariot and fled away on foot. Okay, so here we have this story being set up, and we, we say, see that Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali, if you remember, those are two of the tribes of Israel, and he gets ten 1,000 men together to fight. You know, he's, he's assembling them. He's gathering, he's gathering the, the might. And then he goes into this little tiny uh, foreshadowing. For people who like movies and everything, this is a foreshadowing of what's coming. He talks about Heber the Canaanite, the of the children of Horab, the father-in-law of Moses, and that they had pitched in the plain near Kadesh. All right, so we have this family that's not really Jewish. All right, they're the father-in-law. He's They're the children of the father-in-law of Moses. Okay, Uh, remember Moses went out into Midia and married Zipporah, and his father-in-law weaves in and out of the stories all through the Pentateuch, and he and his children went to the promised land with them and they got a portion of the land but they're not truly Israelites, they're not Jews, they've never followed him. and remember we talked about this when we've talked about the Midianites, the Midianites were believers in one God. Okay the Midianites are Hebrew people. Okay and remember not all Hebrews are Jews but all Jews will be Hebrew <laughs> because the Hebrew trace their lineage through Ebor. Eber was one of the last of the long living uh, people. And he lived all the way up until Joseph's day. From, from just a generation or two after the flood, he lived all the way to be able to see Joseph if he had gone to that area. Okay, There's nothing that says he ever met Joseph but he lived long enough to have met Joseph. So these people are followers of the one God just not Jews right you have Ebor from Ebor was born eventually Abraham so Abraham is of the line of Ebor which makes him Hebrew okay but all of the descendants of Ebor are Hebrews because he is the righteous line he was in he battled against Nimrod's mystery Babylon and all the false gods that he worshiped, and Eber was the follower of God, and they were light and dark for all practical purposes during that, during that period of time. So everybody from his line, well, I shouldn't say everybody, most people from his line <laughs> worship one God. They, they were raised correctly because Eber had other sons and daughters that were Hebrew but not Jewish. They weren't the children of Israel. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob who is renamed Israel and so everybody who is Jewish is of the line of Israel Jacob which comes through Abraham (laughs) to be Jewish to be a child of Israel you have to come through Abraham's line through through Isaac through Jacob who later becomes Israel because the Midianites fall from that line they would be considered Hebrews followers of the one true God but not Israelites they don't fall under the Abrahamic covenant now they're worshiping the one true God they're going to be blessed for worshiping the one true God as far as the Jews concerned yes they were Gentiles because they weren't Jewish everybody who's not a Jew a child of Israel is a Gentile okay even those Hebrews that aren't from the line of uh, Abraham are Gentiles and matter of fact Part of the reason that it goes back to Jacob is remember, Abraham had a whole lot of children. Okay, he had Ishmael. Then, when he's a hundred years old, he has Isaac. Then, after Sarah dies, he goes out and gets married again, and he's 120 something, and he has another eight kids. Yeah, and they would be following under the Hebrews, but they're not. Israelites, because they don't come through the line of Jacob. So only Abraham and Isaac. Isaac. Technically, he's not a Jew because he is not of the line of Jacob. He's the father of Jacob. They didn't come Jews until Jacob, and that's when Israel, he took the name Israel, God gave him the name Israel, and that is where the true line of Israel is given their backing. Now, they'll claim Father Abraham, okay? But Abraham and Isaac really weren't Jews because they weren't Israelites. Yeah, well, like Annie was pointing out, it goes all the way back to Shem, you know, um, it, all the way back to the beginning, God's line. God's line has always been hated, especially by Satan, but also by those who are following his agenda. His line will be hated. Because that righteous line has always been rejected by the world. Why does the world, even today, hate the Jews and hate Christians? Because we represent the righteousness of God, and light hurts those who want to dwell in darkness. If we are walking with God and we are shining out his light, the world is going to hate us and it's starting to hate us more and more and it's going to keep getting worse as things go on. If you don't believe it, look at all the stuff that that's going on in news, all these Christian businesses being attacked because they want to be Christian. You know, go online and read some article about that that is, you know, positive about Christianity and then read all the vitriol that comes underneath it from these haters of Christian, you know, Christianity and morality. It's not long until that starts coming out at us in more than just writing. You know, be ready. Be ready. We are closing in on the end days, and the church will be persecuted. And we will have to stand up and make a decision. Am I going to stand for God, lose everything I have, and maybe even my life, or am I going to hide, try to hide the light under a bushel and try to be acceptable to the world? You know, now, that doesn't mean we go around and we push the edges out and say, you know, let me be as obnoxious as possible with God's word. But we need to take a stand. So we see the, the world is always going to hate the light. Always going to hate those that stand for God. They did with Shem. They did with Eber. They have with Abraham. They have with Isaac. And they have with us as Christians. And they always will. The world wants to sin. The flesh wants to sin. And when we come in with God's standards, the world doesn't like it. Matter of fact, if you think about it, you don't like it when you try to lift up God in your own life. So your flesh kicks and, 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 and argues with you when you bring God into your own life. And that's why we know that Galatians 2.20 is important. I am crucified. My flesh must be crucified because otherwise it's going to kick and complain and, and fight against the light that's coming into my life. Okay, And we're just a microcosm of what goes on in the world. <laughs> and we know that it's hard. How, how many times have you decided, I'm going to obey God in this area and, and then an hour later you're failing? Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe, maybe you're really good and you lasted a day or two. <laughs> you know, or you're really, really strong and you've managed to last a couple months or a year or two. You most of us don't usually last that long. Usually it doesn't take long. God, I'm going to get rid of this in my life, and I'm just going to live the way you want me to, and the next thing you know, you're falling flat on your face. Keep in mind, you know, here we're seeing this idea that he's, he's gone out, and he's, he's, not, he's not very comfortable. Barak is not very comfortable with this. And he's called all these people, and just as Deborah said, Sisera has gathered his army by the river, in the river. Now, why you would put chariots anywhere near a river, I don't know. <laughs> it's not the best place for chariots. It's wet down by the river. <laughs> okay? It's going to be muddy down by the river. That's not a very smart place for him to go and gather his, his troops. Now, he's figuring we're just going to gather at the river, and then we're charging up the mountain. And Deborah's already told Barak, you, know, you gather up in the mountain, then you go meet him. You're not waiting for him to attack you. You are going down to meet him. Yeah, well, she says I will drop him to the river. So. Yeah, God drew him. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, God is the one reason he went to the river. Yes, that's, you know, God is the one that put him down in the, in the worst possible place that was going to be to set up his, to set up his army. Yeah, if, he, if all he had was foot soldiers, the river's not too bad a place to be. But you're taking your, your chariots, iron chariots, heavy Chariots down into places where it's muddy and boggy. So it wasn't wasn't the best laid plan, but that also shows how confident Cicero was. I mean, he obviously he wasn't an idiot. He was a good general. He's conquered all these enemies for 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 the for his king. So he wasn't a a novice at what he's done. But he was so confident that he was going to put these people in their place with his army that he did some really dumb things. And this is where we can get sometimes when we're we're going into this. You know, I've talked to, you know, God, I'm going to change my life. I don't need you to crucify my flesh. I can do it. I have absolute confidence in myself that I can control my flesh. And God says, okay, you you go ahead and fail, and then when you're done, you can repent, and I can come in and crucify your flesh. And it's going to take longer, too. It'll take longer. Because we're going to fight, we're going to argue, we're going to be disappointed. And when we fail... There are consequences for the sin of our failure. There's always consequence for sin, and when we choose to not do things God's way, we will have to face the consequences for that lack of faith. Sometimes they're big consequences. Sometimes they're little consequences. You know, only, and you know the sad thing was, is, not was, but is, we don't know what those consequences are Usually, when we go out to do something wrong, we think we've counted the cost maybe. I, I This will happen. You know, I go out and get drunk, I'll have a hangover. I can handle a hangover. And we get drunk, and then we do something really stupid. We get in the car and have a crash. So now we've got all kinds of bills and a, and a car to replace, and maybe even taking somebody's life in the process. You know, we weren't thinking about all the possible cost. We were just thinking of the first thoughts in our mind and go, oh, I can handle those costs. I, Usually, sin will cost us so much more than we ever think it's going to cost us. So much more. One moment of pleasure of sin. And then, you know, it could be any number of things that that can happen. Your reputation could be shot by one bad action. In verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day in which the Lord has driven, delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? And Barak went down from Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men, and the Lord discomforted Sisera and his chariots and all of his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off the chariot and fled away on his foot, on his feet. You know, she says, get up. Now is the time for battle. You're not waiting here for him. You're, you are going down to meet the enemy. God calls us so often to go meet the enemy and oftentimes we are very cowardly and we go God I don't want to go fight you know if Christianity really lifted up the way God says men would be flocking to Christianity you know Christianity is really in the way it's taught and practiced in our day and age designed for wimps. It really is. God says go get into the battle And oftentimes we're going, God, I don't want to get into the battle. If you go into the battle, you might get hurt, God. I don't want to go into the battle. And God's saying, go, get into the battle. Why? Because we're wearing his armor. We're in his strength. And we need to get up and do what he asks us to do. And that can be anything from standing up for him, being willing to lose everything in our life for him, being ready to lose our own life, which is actually the best thing you can do because then you end up in heaven. But you know, giving your life should be the easiest thing. If you give your life you go to heaven. To lose your reputation, to lose your possessions, that's a lot harder because that means you have to suffer with the consequences of those things. But you know if God's in it, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, look through history, look through the the Fox's Book of Martyrs that these people who gave all, who lost all, and their names are still remembered to this day because of giving up for God. Read these autobiographies or even biographies of these Christian leaders and watch the things that they were willing to give up to have them to be exalted later on. Somebody like a George Mueller, Saying, I'm going to take these, these, all these orphans, and I'm going to supply. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give them a place to live. I don't have any money. I don't know why, where it's all coming from. People laughed at him when he first said that he was going to do this. They made, they made fun of him. They said, "There's no way you can do it," and yet he did it. Look at Booth, who created the the Salvation Army. He sacrificed everything. He had nothing in his day to start the Salvation Army. And even to this day, his ministry still moves forward. Not quite as Christian as he used to be. It's gone downhill quite a bit, but even every once in a while, you'll find a a branch of the Salvation Army that's still solidly Christian, all right? All because he was willing to lose reputation, give up everything. Who knows what will happen if we step forward with God and say, God, I'm willing to put everything on the line. Who knows what God will do in the long run? Yeah. We're usually afraid of putting everything on, on the line. You know, God, I'm going to give you 90% of my income. I'm going to live on the 10% you're supposed to have. You know, there's been a handful of people that have done that. And God has blessed them because they were honest and with integrity. Uh, JC Penney, the, the founder of Caterpillar, uh, uh, um, yeah. Uh, Sears and Roebuck. These guys all did that. They gave 90% of the money that they got from their businesses and lived on 10. Now I'm sure they didn't start at 90%. (laughs) Okay, They built themselves up to 90%. But how much do we trust God with our money, with our time, with our effort? Yeah. Do we, most Christians will, well, God, I've got my retirement, I've got my 401K, I've got my bank account, I've got this, I've got this. Now, God, what, what, what can I do for you? I've taken care of myself, what can I do now for you? And usually God will say, okay, let me have your savings. <laughs> uh, no, God, I can't do that, that's, that's my That's my safety net. You know, what did Jesus tell the rich young ruler that came to him? He said, you know, obey these laws, honor your mother and father, don't, don't murder. And he goes, well, I've done all that stuff since I was a kid, as a youth. He goes, well, go and get rid of all that you own and follow me. What does it say? He went away sad because he had much wealth. He had a God in front of God, so he didn't even follow the second commandment. Okay? He had an idol, his money. And yet he goes to Jesus, I, I I'm obeying all the t- I'm obeying all the commandments. Because he in his mind, I didn't, he didn't go bow down in front of a statue. You know, he didn't recognize that his money was his idol. It was more important to him than anything. What are the idols in our life that we need to get rid of? The cost the, ma- the cross of Christ demands a sacrifice. What are we going to give up for him? You know, what is sacred to us that we won't give up. And that's a pretty big question on that one. <laughs> you know, for some people it's their family. God, I won't sacrifice my family. You know, no matter what, God, I won't sacrifice my family. Now God's probably not going to ask you to sacrifice your family, but you know what, if he does, we should be ready to. You know, we look at one of Annie's favorite characters, the Ten Boon family, and how much it costs them to follow God. Not just Corey, the whole family. And the patriarch was the one that started this, hiding the Jews and and moving them out. It wasn't wasn't the girls. It was him that helped do that. They did most of the work. But he was the one that brought them in and said, we're going to stand for God. We're going to do what's right for God. What did that cost him? Cost him his life and his family and most of their lives. (laughs) What is it that we say is so important in our life? What is it that we won't sacrifice to God? It's an idol if we won't. <clears throat> All right, Cicero is discomforted, which means that he was getting beat. <laughs> and in the middle of the battle, he got off his chariot and ran away. <laughs> well, he, he, his army was losing. He was a pretty brave guy. He really was a brave guy. I mean, but there is this place where when everything is going against you, Almost everybody will turn into a coward and run if you don't have something that you're defending on. And this is why most Christians will run if we're not focused on God. We're we'll going to battle. We're going to go into battle real bravely. And when it looks like everything's going against us and we forget that God's on our side, oftentimes we'll run. God, I'm going to witness to this person. And the first time they give you a question that is <laughs> tough, it's like, oh, or they give you a look, you know. Who are you getting ready to talk to? You know, ah, I'm running. <laughs> you know, we do this frequently. You know, we don't want to make a big deal of Cicero. Cicero is being human. He sees his army defeated. He's trying to run away and fight again another day. You know? um, verse 16, But Beric, Beric pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Horuseth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Cicero fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. All right. Now remember Sisera has run off the other way, the chariots are in retreat. There are people in repeat, retreat, and, and Barak and the ten thousand men are chasing after them, killing them all. Uh, this army has been totally wiped out. So we look at we look now at Sisera, verse 17. How be it Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Ebor the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hezoth of the house of Ebor the Kenite. So, this is why we had that foreshadowing back a while ago of this place. All right. Uh, Movie movie makers like to think that they, and storytellers kind of like to think they brought up the idea of foreshadowing, but God has had foreshadowing (laughs) all the way back at Genesis when he said the Messiah is coming on the very first prophecy. Yeah, and here we see this whole thing. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he turned into her tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave it to him to drink and covered him. And again he said unto her, Stand at the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man does come and inquire of you and say, Is there any man here that you will say, No. All right, Sisera finds this tent and he asks for protection. (laughs) Now, this shows you how far down he's already gone because who is he asking for protection? Not the husband, (laughs) Jael, the wife. You know, hide me, hide me. And she puts him in, puts him under a nice warm blanket, a mantle, a coat. He asks for water, and what does she give him? Milk. Probably warm milk seems how they did not have refrigerators back then. What does warm milk do to people? He's been running in a battle. He has run from the battle. He is tired. She gives him warm milk to drink and puts him under a nice warm blanket. <laughs> now we're going to see he's going to fall asleep. <laughs> Last thing he tells her is if anybody comes and asks, tell him I'm not here. Okay. Tell them that I am not here. Now, he has kind of an implicit trust in this person that they're going to protect him from the Israelites. Misplaced. It turns out to be misplaced trust. <laughs> but it came down, remember it said that these people are at peace with his king, all right? So they're at peace. He doesn't really expect her to turn him over mm. to the enemy because they're at peace with them, so technically, the enemy he's fighting should be their enemy, <laughs> all right? So he's feeling comfortable. I can go rest. I can go hide. And this woman is going to protect me. And again, I do not understand why he put his trust in a woman in his, his time frame, OK? In our time frame, it would be no, no big deal. But in his time frame, this is kind of an interesting thing to do. He's putting his trust in a woman to be his protector. And that's kind of a bizarre thing when you think about it. It That's what I'm saying, back then. I don't want to sound too bad, but in our day and age, we wouldn't think twice about it. But in that day, just talking to a woman was a big deal. For a man to talk to a woman was a big deal. He's asking her to hide him. Okay? And apparently her husband's not there, which is even worse. Yeah, talking to a woman without her husband. Talking to a woman without her husband, going into her tent. Yeah. to be hidden by himself with just her, you know, not as bad as if a Jewish person did it, but definitely still a pretty bad reputation. Okay, this is not something that is done. All right, verse 21 And J.L., J. Eber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it to the ground for he was fast asleep and weary all right literally this is a big tent stick to begin with she puts it right in the temple of his, of his on his head and nailed his head to the ground all right yeah. yeah and he is so tired he's under this warm blanket he's been given the milk He doesn't even know anything's going on until that nail starts going through his head, probably. And it's kind of interesting. You know, it says that she fastened his, you know, smote him with the nail to the temples and fastened it to the ground. You know, she she fastened his head to the ground and it wasn't moving. (laughs) Number one, that's a pretty big stake. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. That would be kind of, you would have to hit it hard. You would have to go pretty good. She was, J.R. was no weakling. (laughs) But going through the temple made it a lot easier. It has a soft spot in your, in your head. And going through the other side on the temple, you know, if she went straight through, it's not that hard to go through there, but it's still, you know, she's no weakling, you know, because she had to have made sure that first nail, the first time she hit that nail had to have been strong enough that he didn't get back up. Right. Okay. And verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, they all came out to meet him and said unto him, come and I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he had come into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead and the nail was in his temple. So God subdued that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel and the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. All right. So she goes out and she goes, "Hey, he's in here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, uh, Barak, you were you were leading that army. You know, I know you were leading the army. Uh, your enemy's in here. Come, let me show. Let me show you this enemy." And he had expired. <laughs> Getting a nail through your temple would probably be pretty detrimental. I don't know that anybody could ever live through through that, especially from one side of the other to the other side. Yeah, well most tent most tent spakes are pretty most tent stakes are pretty pretty good. And you gotta think this was not just, you know, a little tiny nail most likely. It was a Probably spike. A Probably a big wooden stake and Jen had a good hammer yeah. I'm sure she did. But they were used to putting these tent pegs into hard clay. And you know, sad to say, usually it was the women in those days that put up the tent, tents and even today. In the wandering tribes, the women are the ones that put up the tents, not the men. The men take it easy; they just sit, they just sit on their butts all the day long. And the women, so she, she knew how to put a tent stake in, and she just chose a new place to put the tent stake. And learn how to sleep with one eye open. Yeah. And well, she put a, she she him. She kind of knew what him. she did. She he was tired. She gave him the warm milk. She put him under a blanket, and he put all of his trust into the wrong place. Okay, and this is why Barak did not get the praise for the defeat of Sisera because, yes, he went into battle. Yes, Sisera took off, but it was the woman that got the praise for killing him. And you know what? This really does go to show us that if we disobey God, God is still going to get what he wants done done. He'll use somebody else to get it done. You just lose the blessing that should have been yours, but God will still, if you don't witness to somebody that you're supposed to witness, God will still make sure that person gets witnessed to. You will then lose the reward of, of talking to the person you were supposed to talk to. If you are, are supposed to do some mighty work for God, he's still going to make that mighty work happen. Now, we look at somebody, I've used George Mueller as an example. How many other people might have been called before George Mueller to take care of those orphans? We will never know until we get to heaven if God chooses to show us. But there may have been other people before him that God says, I want you to go take care of those, those orphans. They go, oh, no, God, I'm not, I, I can't trust you for that kind of money. I can't trust you for those dirty you know, urchins that are nothing but trouble. And God says, fine, you don't get the reward. I got George Mueller down the road who's going get, to get the reward for it. God will always get his work done. Whether we allow it to be us or somebody else, he will get it done because he is God. He already knows that we're going to reject or or accept. And he's already got the next person in line. If we're going to reject, he's already put the next person in line. They may not have been the number one choice. But with God, they're going to get it done. So always be aware, and this is not an excuse not to serve God. <laughs> it is the reason to say, I want to serve you, God, because it is you. And you're going to make sure it gets done one way or the other. So let it be you. <laughs> let it be you. God, what is it you want me to do? What, what is it that you want me to pay and sacrifice for you, God? It's always scary when we first start looking at what he's asking us to do. But when you're obedient to him, the rewards on the other side of it Are out of this world literally, but they're also out of this world sometimes in our day to day walk. And people will look at you and say, wow, this is what it looks like when somebody's used by God. Wow, this is, look what you guys are accomplishing. I think about even our church. When I came here, who would have ever believed that we would have been on the internet being listened to by five to six, seven thousand people a month? This little tiny church in the middle of nowhere having a ministry around the world. And who knows what they're listening to and why they're listening, but God is being lifted up, and it's our church that's that's lifting them up. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to help us to be bold and to live in you. Help us to step forward in your spirit and be willing to sacrifice anything that you want us to sacrifice because, Lord, the blessing is so much greater for that sacrifice. You don't allow us to lose all. You told the disciples that no one has given up family that won't get more. And we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to go with us as we go about it. your business. In Jesus' name, amen.